All right. I am now joined once again uh, by Dr. Kuba, who is here to fill us in on everything that's been going on uh, in Ukraine and related since the last time we talked, which was not very long ago. But I don't think he's going to have a shortage of material today. The um, there's it's a very dynamic situation and the impacts are so substantial and multifaceted that there's no um, there's a lot of different things that we've just touched upon um, to discuss. Let me maybe just start with a um, overview of how the situation stands and then. Mm -hmm. Um, we can go on to uh, questions uh, from the listeners. Yep. So the um, the infamous 40-mile um, armor column uh, arrived at the uh, outskirts of, Ukraine, of Kiev mm -hmm. and is busy um, surrounding the city. It looks like the plan is to establish a perimeter um, and besiege the city, applying pressure on the Zelensky government to um, capitulate or negotiate um, while operations continue in other parts of the country. Along mm -hmm. the Sea of Azov coast, the forces from the Donetsk uh, People's Republic, uh, Lugansk People's Republic, and uh, Russian forces from Crimea have linked up. Uh, they've surrounded the port city of uh, Mariupol, and mm -hmm. their fighting is extremely heavy. It's likely that um, given the location of many of the right-wing militias along the uh, DPR, LPR front, and the symbolic place of Mariupol in their imagination, since that's where they gave the separatists one of their most significant defeats in 2014, mm -hmm. um, that we're seeing um, that there's going to be very intense fighting there um, as the uh, Ukrainian rightists make uh, a last stand. And... Um, the city, uh, the regional capital of Kherson, has been uh, captured by uh, Russian forces. That's to the west of Crimea, um, near the uh, Black Sea coast. Not on the Black Sea, but near the coast. And that will um, open up movement further west towards Odessa. The um, city of Chernigov has been also completely surrounded. The mayor reports that the entrances and exits have been mined by Russian forces. Um, apart from the city itself, there's a larger pocket of Ukrainian territory um, that's been isolated and cut off by the link-up of um, two Russian advances. The, uh, on the diplomatic front, Mm -hmm. uh, Macron continues to try to play the role of uh, peacemaker and intermediary 
he's the only Western leader that has regular high-level contact with Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. <coughs> the um, Putin has assured him that uh, Russian forces are not targeting civilians. And given the casualty counts that we've seen so far, it's dubious that there's a policy of targeting civilians or that there's any large-scale massacres. What's much more likely is that now that there's urban fighting, um, well, urban fighting doesn't limit itself to official buildings or uh, military installations. Um, Sometimes pitched battles occur in residential districts and the city's civilian population becomes um, falls victim to what the, the euphemism is collateral damage. Right. Um, which is not great. Um, I mean, of course, it's, it's an extraordinarily destructive um, tragedy. And this is why no one should favor war as a tool of uh, policymaking, especially a tool uh, of first resort. But um, war crimes allegations don't seem to fit the um, what what has been credibly demonstrated to have taken place. Yeah, I mean, when you say war crimes, right? So I I think there might be a distinction to be drawn here between specific things that have been alleged uh, that that Russian forces may have done here and, you know, just a general sense in which, uh, like, you know, I don't know, was the, uh, you know, was was the United States committing war crimes during, you know, the shock and awe phase of the the invasion of Iraq? I mean, like, I I think, you know, it depends what you mean, uh, but certainly I wouldn't expect so much um, intentional massacres of civilians as, like, what, you know, if you remember... A very long time ago, there was this back and forth between Sam Harris and Noam Chomsky about kind of intention and morality, and uh, and and Chomsky's point in there was was just that um, you know not intending to kill uh, specific civilians isn't really the the only issue, right? You know, as opposed to kind of uh, callous disregard, you know, for for civilian deaths that you're causing. Yeah, and the. Um... There's a uh, very powerful bias in American warfighting against um, accepting U.S. losses, U.S. military losses, in order to um, in order to preserve the civilian population or to preserve infrastructure essential for mm-hmm. uh, the civilian population. So. The U.S., when it blasted Iraq, both in um, Operation Desert Storm and in the 2003 invasion, it did so with an aim of maximally degrading the uh, infrastructure and communication and command and control capacity of the military, including doing things like destroying... um, uh, power plants, mm-hmm. uh, civilian infrastructure, telecommunications um, networks, and that is not a direct war crime in the sense of bombing a hospital or which 
I mean, that right. was more of an Afghanistan thing. Um, right. But um, it is it does lead to um, much greater suffering on the part of the civilian population, especially as uh, some of the most vulnerable people scramble to um, use the communications networks to find out what's going on or transportation infrastructure to try to get to safety. You're um, basically forcing them to bunker down and uh, live through the urban warfare that follows. Um, mm -hmm. While and I think that in the um, higher than expected Russian losses, we're seeing the opposite calculus. Mm -hmm. that, um, in order to minimize the damage to Ukrainian infrastructure and to uh, minimize Ukrainian civilian losses, the Russian rules of engagement have avoided those kinds of um, choices. And we know that Russians are perfectly capable of destroying a city. Look at Grozny, look at Aleppo. Mm -hmm. But for tactical reasons, they, uh, for strategic reasons, rather, they have chosen not to do that in the case of Ukraine. And um, as a result, the war crimes allegations in the technical definition of the term, where there's specific types of uh, military uh, tactics or um, specific actions that are nominally um, outlawed by international mm -hmm. convention. Uh, it's, it's very hard to make the case that what Russia has done falls under um, any of those prohibitions. Even the war itself, yeah. aggressive war is a violation of the UN Charter, because of the continual security um, instability and the lack of a post-2014 settlement, that would be difficult to pin on Putin as well in a legal sense. Right. Of course, he yeah. is the one who initiated the advance, ordered the offensive, prepared uh, the Russian military to go in, and he could stop it. Right. But from that technical uh, sort of post-Nuremberg definition, it's it's not uh, clear at all that it would qualify as a war crime. Oh yeah, okay. So I mean, if you probably you know tried to prosecute him at the ICC, that might be a problem. But if but you know, I mean, obviously, I think in an ordinary colloquial sense, I mean, this is what anybody I think you know would um, you know would would call. A uh, a war of aggression, right? That there was, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Ukraine's ongoing civil war and instability, and uh, and and you know, sort of, um, and you know, yeah. Russian security yeah. concerns Absolutely. down the line. But like in an immediate sense, I mean, they, they they didn't have to. Uh, you know, I mean, this 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 is an absolutely insane escalation invading the entire yes. country. Yeah, uh, concur concur wholeheartedly, and. This is a situation where we don't have to split hairs and we don't have to um, we don't have to uh, introduce nuance. The um, American invasion of Iraq in 2003, the NATO operation against Libya. Uh -huh. uh, if we can call those wars of aggression, which 
I would say, you know, if the shoe fits, if the right. description is, is perfectly sensible, then this likewise would right. be a war of aggression. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is also, I mean, I do want to, I do want to get back to some of the, the factual updates in a second, but I mean, I, I guess it is also useful, I think, to do that sort of, um, you know, to think through those, uh, those, those analogies, you know, that kind of, uh, very defensible sort of what about where, you know, you make sure that you're applying consistent standards in, uh, in different directions. And so like one thing, um, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I think about like how, uh, you know, if there was some other power that was in a position to do much about it, right. How I would have wanted, uh, the, that other power to respond to, you know, the, uh, you know, the invasion of Iraq or to, you know, even, I mean, obviously a much less destructive example compared to that, but, you know, in terms of making the analogy tighter, as far as being something within, you know, the, uh, our region, you know, the invasion of Panama and, you know, and, and where I come down when I think about that is, well, look, I mean, what I've, I certainly wouldn't have wanted that other power to start World War III by trying to establish a no-fly zone and, and shoot down American planes. Uh, but if, it, you know, some of the some of what's talked about and happened to some extent, like, you know, targeted sanctions against oligarchs, you know, if they if there were other powers that responded to you know, the invasion of Iraq by, um, you know, with like targeted sanctions against politically connected American billionaires, you know, Halliburton, uh, executives, people like that. I, I have to say, I wouldn't have cried any tears over that. Exactly. If the EU had decided to go after the, um, assets of, uh, Donald Rumsfeld or, um, or George W. Bush or Dick Cheney, um, as a means of applying pressure to end the Iraq war. I, I don't think anybody would, would consider that to be an overreach. Right. Um, but, and, um, the, on the, on the war crimes issue too, one of the few, um, levers that the outside world has to make American war criminals um, alleged war criminals um, uncomfortable is the um, European principle that uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes can be prosecuted outside of their jurisdiction if uh, the country the countries involved are unwilling and unable. Mm-hmm. And I think that Henry Kissinger and some of the Bush administration are actually limited in where they can travel because uh, I'm not sure if it's Spanish courts or the ICC, but uh, there are warrants that have right. issued. Uh, right. And I think um, I think that's a good thing, and I don't see a reason why that shouldn't also be applied to the engineers and masterminds of this conflict. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Similarly, I was, oh yeah, you know, they don't. They can just stay home and count their money, right? right. It, it's a limited gesture, but uh, it isn't purely symbolic because it does impinge on their um, mobility and uh, their freedom to travel. 
Right. Yeah. So uh, before we before we take calls, one one thing I did want to make sure uh, there might be other things you want to get to also. But the one thing I did want to make sure we talked about a little bit was, um, you know, the you said that the the you know the point of the um, of of the attack on on Kiev is to get the Zelensky uh, Zelensky government to to either uh, negotiate or capitulate. You know, was the phrase that you used, and. Um, and right now, I mean, we kind of hear a lot of rhetoric about the negotiation issue that, um, you know, Zelensky, you know, wants to, you know, sit down with Putin, et cetera. But, but I, am, I am curious about your sense of, like, what sort of negotiations the Ukrainians would be willing to engage in now versus what the, um, you know, Putin might uh, hope to force them into with this attack. So Putin... Um, on his call with Macron, um, the one issue that came up was refugees and civilian casualties. One upside for negotiating uh, for the Ukrainians would be to try to secure some kind of um, of uh, civilian um, channels to allow people, uh, non-combatants, the elderly children, to leave these besieged cities or some um, basis, some mechanism for the delivery of uh, food and medicine into the besieged cities. That's a small bore um, issue uh, from the strategic perspective, and it's not going to settle the conflict, but I don't doubt that Zelensky has some value, uh, places some value on Ukrainian lives, and would welcome the ability to save as many people as possible. Um, On the strategic level, Putin had three points, which he said were essential to any settlement, any resolution to to the conflict. One was Ukrainian recognition of Russian sovereignty over the Crimea. And frankly, I think that that should be a pretty easy get, given that um, since 2014, uh, neither the Crimea, the Crimeans haven't been yearning for reunification with Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have had no real prospects of getting the peninsula back. Uh, the second was neutrality for Ukraine, no NATO membership, and the Finland model, mm-hmm. one which, um, quite honestly, seems both appropriate and relatively attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third was the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, which, honestly, that's, that's going to be the sticking point. It's a smart move by Putin to phrase it in that way, because who, who's going to oppose denazification? But uh, who is going to carry it out? What does it mean in practice, right? Is right. everyone from uh, post-2014 Ukrainian administrations a Nazi by proxy? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, tol- you know, they, they integrated the Azov Battalion and right-wing uh, militia groups, and they had right-wing parties in their um, legislature. Right. Um, what does demilitarization mean? 
and who's going to enforce it. So that point is the one where Russia has maximum uh, leverage in interpretation and in um, choosing to either make it palatable or completely unacceptable, depending on right. it feels like it should, uh, it would gain from prolonging the conflict. Uh, so <clears throat> I yeah. think, yeah. And these are all, these all should have been on the table before the conflict. Right. Uh, if this was the package of Russian concerns, then um, I have no, I cannot say to what extent it's a good faith message. Mm -hmm. uh, it may very well be that um, it's just a pretext to, it's just a rhetoric to make Russia seem less mm -hmm. and bellicose, but, um, and to make potentially lure in the Ukrainians to endless uh, negotiations. But um, the, those are questions which would need to be resolved, um, at least on the uh, Crimea and the security future uh, of Ukraine um, in any comprehensive agreement with Russia. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I, I think that, you know, the denazification one, I mean, my, um, you know, my sense of this uh, and and you can tell me, you know, what, what might be right or wrong about this is that this is a issue where everybody is at least a little bit dishonest because uh, the the you know kind of Russian um, you know like the Russian narrative about this stuff uh, exaggerates it wildly, right? But on the other hand, um, the idea that uh, the idea that Ukraine doesn't have a Nazi problem also seems false, right? I mean, there are these far right militias uh, that that are actually actively engaging in fighting there, there, there have been some, you know, very disturbing far right parties that have you know, been in government at different points, you know, so it, it, it seems like, um, you know, the accurate thing to say is that, that there is, it, it, it's not complete nonsense, right? There is, there is something there. It's just, it's just that the way that um, sort of Putin and his supporters talk about it as if like everybody fighting Russia and Ukraine is a Nazi is ridiculous. Yeah. The, what has taken place is that um, because of the strength of ethno-nationalism, uh, including violent uh, anti-democratic liberal variants of it, uh, especially in Western Ukraine, but in other parts of the country as well, uh, during the post-2014 period, the armed wings of various uh, nationalist groups organized to uh, provide, to stiffen the resistance of regular Ukrainian uh, forces and were then integrated into Ukrainian security institutions as their own units with commanders that were straight up fascist ideologues. So it's, you know, the US has a Nazi problem too but there's a difference between online skinheads and the Unite the Right rally 
and having something like the 101st Airborne just be a Nazi unit within the U.S. military. Um, so that is a qualitative difference that does set Ukraine apart from other countries. In Russia, uh, one of the most similar countries in this respect actually is probably Russia, where you have um, units like uh, Katerov's uh, Chechen forces mm -hmm. that have similar extremist ideologies and propensity towards violence, um, horrific violence, and um, are integrated as regular formations within the Russian security apparatus. But as we saw in Germany, when they discovered that there was um, a substantial um, far-right presence in their military, and in some of the moves even in the United States, there is a kind of expectation that no matter what the Nazis might do as civil society organizations, you don't just let them have a brigade or a battalion or uh, any other kind of military formation under color of law. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, I, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you, it sounds clearly right to say that at this point, recognizing the Crimea thing, like that, that is a, that just seems like even just, um, like even just as a matter of practical possibility, it just doesn't seem like that's going to be reversed, and and it also doesn't seem, uh, you know that, uh, you know there's there's no uh, there's no like anti-Russian insurgency in Crimea, right? There's there's a reason for that, uh, but but I think that the, um, the the Finland issue, I mean, I can see that that is a little bit trickier from uh from a ukrainian perspective since of course like we talked about before i mean if you actually get to develop like finland you know there there are way worse things to be than finland but um but but i also you know i mean there is um i mean it's obvious enough even though it you know backfired um horribly in this case why from a ukrainian perspective you know, getting to be part of, of the, you know, like the EU and getting to, to be part of, uh, you know, having the, you know, someday in the future, you know, potentially the security protection of NATO, you know, why that would sound like an attractive prospect. Yeah. And the legal justification to reject that Russian demand stems from a very, uh, legalistic understanding of sovereignty that as an independent state, Ukraine is sovereign and no one can tell them what to do. Um, no laws apply to them that they uh, aren't, aren't part of a treaty um, obligation that they've um, consented to through their political process. But the reality is that within this international structure where sovereignty is a constituent foundational concept, the ability of states to exercise that kind of untrammeled sovereignty is unequal. And the um, reality is that 
um, states such as Finland and Ukraine and states such as Canada and Japan have constraints on how they can exercise their sovereignty without um, serious consequences. In this case, typically those consequences are entirely notional because mm -hmm. um, Canada is not going to sign. Canada, in theory, uh, as a sovereign state, could withdraw from NATO and enter into a strategic security partnership with the People's Republic of China, Russia, with Iran, for that matter. Mm -hmm. But we all know what would happen. Right. Um, and that's enough to limit the universe of options that are mooted for uh, Canadian security policy in Ottawa, which basically amounts to, do we um, sit this one out or do we back the Americans? Um, and now we see the consequences before the sort of tacit understanding of um, Ukraine's place in the regional security order uh, was established. You know, you can, in theory, pursue a an alignment with NATO, but this is what happens. Right. Uh, and, 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 yeah. And so it, for it's purely also practical reasons, right. maybe it's not the best idea. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I think I think it is also worth noting because I think some people are confused about this that like even in a legal way, um, you know, it, there's there's no problem. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, anytime you're doing something under duress, uh, you know, because you want to avoid a military conflict, you know, there's there's some sense, in, you know, very broad sense in which you're acting less sovereignishly, you know, than. Uh, than, than you would otherwise, I guess. Uh, although also, you know, you don't want to take that too far or else like just, just peace negotiations in general are illegitimate. But um, but in a legal sense, I mean, look, it, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. You know, like a sovereign nation signing a treaty saying that they're not going to enter into an alliance is fine, right? Or like, or, or, or some third party saying they're not going to enter into an alliance with that nation is fine. You know, that that's... Uh, that that that's not like the idea that you know they've lost their sovereignty if that happened. I mean, there there might be practical reasons you know for and against it, but they're they're like that's just like that doesn't that doesn't make sense except in that like extremely broad definition of sovereignty. Well, I think that I agree with you, and I think that what you um, that very broad definition of sovereignty is one of the side effects of the period of libertarian kind of intellectual prominence after the Cold War, together with uh, American dreams of unilateralism and um, basically, you know, the UN can't tell us what to do, which is great for the US to say. And, um, if you had more of uh, reasoned understanding um, and not this sort of libertarian, it's my, my property, I can do whatever I want, and anything else is a violation of my uh, God-given mm -hmm. rights, that there is a community of nations 
certainly at the regional level, if not at the global level. And you have to adjust your expectations and your behavior uh, to reflect that reality. Um, again, not as a normative statement, but I'm putting all those considerations aside, but just as a practical reality of how things get done in the world and how to um, minimize uh, conflict and um, pursue uh, interests in uh, the least destructive way possible. Right. No, that makes sense. Okay, let's get the... Um, uh, we, we do have a few callers. I'm probably going to take them out of order just because I want to make sure we're getting to people who haven't necessarily called uh, you know, the last time or whatnot. But if, if we have time for everybody, we'll do everybody. If we, um, if we only have time for, for a couple, we'll do a couple. I should say that I do have a commitment at like 6.30 and I should get off a few minutes before that. But uh, I do want to, um, I'm not sure what your con time constraints are, Kuba, but um, I do want to get to at least a couple of these. So let's do, let's start with Sean. Sean, are you with us? All right, Sean. Uh, lower left hand, lower right hand corner, uh, little microphone. Exactly. Uh, All right, Sean might not see the little microphone in the uh, lower right. So, uh, Sean, if you if you figure it out, or you know whatever, call back in. But I guess let's do Antonio right now. Hello? Yep. Hello. Well, thank you for <clears throat> thank you for the uh, enlightening the you know, enlightening background. I was wondering. Uh, you spoke a little bit about this the last time in the last poll, and I was wondering if you could sort of uh, refresh us on the on the nature of like the of the Russian the Russian imperialism because I you know I'm I'm familiar with the way the U.S. will you know sort of leech uh, countries in its orbit, but I. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent from the precise way that you know Russia does it under under Putin. How how they you know uh, exploit the how they how they are sort of planning because I know that part of the motivation is you know military strategic uh, paranoia about NATO. But I'm also I'm also curious. You know what is the what's the other economic. more economic. So the um, one one thing to um, one thing to appreciate, and uh, I don't mean to turn this into a history lesson, but um, Ben, could you um, could you mute? Because uh, uh. the, the sorry, um, the uh, Russian imperialism from the USSR back to Imperial Russia um, has always been uh, sort of strategy first. And it was a state-led um, endeavor with the possible exception of the, the eastward expansion into Siberia. It wasn't the same as Western mercantile colonialism. There was no um, Russian. Uh, I think there was a fur trading um, company for Alaska but it, there wasn't like a, 
an equivalent to the East India Company that was primarily motivated by um, economic interests. And you can see this in the way that geographically Russian imperialism has been distributed. It pours out from the borders of the Russian uh, core regions rather than picking up trading uh, posts and coaling stations and resource-rich territories uh, where they find them. So Russian imperialism, um, this as experienced by the people in its um, orbit, typically takes the form of um, cultivating local authoritarian leaders. Lukashenko is an excellent example that understand their own interests are served uh, best by compliance with Russian directives. And in exchange for that, they're given a free hand to uh, create whatever kind of um, authoritarian or exploitative political economic structures uh, they see fit. Uh, This was the case, not just in Belarus, but also in places like um, Azerbaijan or the former Soviet Central Asian republics. These countries are also, um, apart from petrochemicals and some types of minerals, they're not that um, wealthy. Uh, they're not sort of as ready for capitalist exploitation as some of the territories that were fell victim to the British or are subject to the United States. Furthermore, Russia itself doesn't have the same kind of economic um, demand that um, the United States or the UK uh, would. They don't need the hydrocarbon reserves of um, Kazakhstan, for instance, to supply their own energy requirements. So the economic side largely stems from uh, coordination on infrastructure and sales of this mineral wealth together with um, the uh, issue by issue obedience of uh, Russian directives when there is a particular uh, economic question that uh, Russia considers to be essential. Um, But one thing that I would say to American leaders, uh, American military leaders, when I was briefing them uh, about China and Russia is that the U.S. is so used to having a business first um, mentality for its policymaking domestically and internationally, that it has difficulty reckoning with a rival that has a politics or strategy first approach. So um, one reason why you don't see the same structures of economic exploitation is that they're just not the point of Russian imperialism. And there's um, some 
serious implications about this because if you're under American hegemony, yes, you could be uh, Mexico or Guatemala um, where the exploitation is immediate, visible, harsh and destructive. But you could also be Ireland or Japan where that hegemony by integrating you economically into a larger um, world economy has creates opportunities for domestic development if you have the um, you know fortuitous combination of local factors and relationship with the metropole uh, that allow it to happen uh, in the case of Russian imperialism and Soviet imperialism um, that room for developmental trajectories for its satellites was uh, sharply diminished. You, um, North, there's a reason that North Korea wasn't a success story that South Korea was. And it stems uh, from the particular um, workings of the um, Soviet political and economic systems. Uh, is that, does that answer your question? Oh, it, it does. That's, uh, I had apparently also been suffering from the same difficulty in uh, divorcing my thinking from the purely economic. And so I guess you're, that, just to make sure that I understand correctly, um, won't use up much more of the time, I promise. I just, it, it, sounds, it sounds like you're saying that the, that the other considerations, the strategic, the military, and even just the, you know, potential uh the you know potential intern like having having somebody there to you know uh, do your do do your bidding is is of greater interest than you know the extraction of resources which you know you say that they don't have a the same kind of structure that a capitalist country would you know, yeah generally speaking exactly generally speaking they have the same uh resources as that, that they could potentially extract from a country like Azerbaijan or um, or Kazakhstan, and you can see in the um, makeup of the leadership class in the United States on um, issues of trade, it's all business lobbies that um, drive and determine policy, um, and the trade policy when there isn't a hot conflict is the principal agenda for uh, American international, um, American international relations in Russia. You don't have the, um, you don't have oligarchs um, writing what the trade agreements should be with um, China or with Belarus. It's that authority that leadership is concentrated in state structures. And that's what I mean by uh, politics first rather than business first. Yeah, that, that is, that is extremely interesting. So, I mean, I guess I, I do want to, I do want to go back to the callers and give shot another shot, but I mean, just, just in a general sense, how do you think it got to be, be that way. I mean, it sounded like earlier you were sort of suggested that it was a 
you know, after effect of, uh, of, of Soviet foreign policy because, because their economic system had been different for, uh, you know, most of the 20th century or, or what do you think it is? No, I blame it on the czar, right? Okay. Um, the, in um, Western countries following the liberal, um, the industrial revolution and the, uh, especially the liberalizing revolutions of the 18th and 19th century, you had um, mirroring the um, independent uh, non-state power centers of uh, regional aristocrats from the feudal era. You had the creation of power centers in um, commercial and industrial enterprises that um, had security in their influence and wealth that didn't depend on the will of the sovereign. And as a result, they could act independently for their own interests. The East India Company is a great example. It starts out just as a chartered money-making enterprise, and then it has to be taken over by the state later. Uh, many of the um, early colonial ventures of Western powers, not just the UK, but also Belgium, for instance, France, begin as chartered um, associations or chartered companies. And then later, as the security problems and strategic competition mounts, they get nationalized. In Russia, you get um, commercial interests and industrial development, not by the independent work of a local bourgeoisie, but by the czar organizing a particular package of reforms and investment and then telling one of uh, their uh, favored uh, courtiers, now you have to do this. And that dependency of um, the economic centers of power on the political authority prevents those economic centers of power from becoming autonomous political actors. One uh, reason why the uh, Yeltsin period was so destructive and so abnormal uh, mm -hmm. for many Russians was precisely because for the first time through the oligarchs, you had these autonomous economic power centers that didn't have to, um, that, that weren't subordinated to a centralized political power. And that experience was enough to chill everyone on the very idea, um, especially the man in the Kremlin for whom uh, crushing uh, autonomous power centers was a central part of his program. Got it. Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's go to uh, let's see if Sean has figured out the uh, the the unmute. Let's try this. Sean, are you with Hello. us? Hello, I'm here. Yes. Can you hear me, Ben? Outstanding. Uh, it's me. I was your first caller uh, ever on this show, and I'm back. I, I'm excited to talk about metaphysics one more time, but today is not that day. <laughs> um, no. You know, um, and I'm hoping you might be able to give me a little bit of a hand here, just because. Um, I'm kind of pulling from a few, a few dis different disciplines, maybe on um, mm -hmm. a question regarding kind of the 
American response, and especially the American right response to what's going on uh, in Ukraine and Russia. And um, I have found um, that, uh, you know, there's a significant amount of uh, resistance right now on the right wing to uh, what's what's our response, uh, some some not so subtle uh, support for, for Putin. Um, I've noticed that at least at least culturally, maybe publicly on I don't watch Fox News, but I could imagine they're kind of probably banging the war drums now, finally. But at least um, culturally in the in the conservative yeah, spheres that I tend to roll in. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to say uh, this afternoon I was uh, listening to uh, to Fox News and Sirius while I was driving. And whereas I have certainly seen clips of Tucker Carlson where he does seem at least Putin curious uh, in this um, – it seems like the main thrust of the networks reported at this point is very um, like, I remember at one point this afternoon, they were referring to Zelensky as Churchill and t-shirt, you know, so it, it seems like it's mostly stuff like that right now. Sure. No, and, and, and uh, totally. Um, and I can, I can absolutely see that. And by the way, I'm sorry if there's a little background noise, I'm still a wage slave. My <laughs> sister is listening and she was like, make sure that there's no background noise, but I'm, I'm, this is my lunch break, so my apologies. Fair enough. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, culturally, though, in, in the circles I roll in, there, there's definitely, not that they're, you know, like my ideological allies, but I'm taking after you and I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm extending an olive branch and trying to, trying to, you know, roll in those circles. So, um, in the, yeah, in those circles, I do find a lot of pro-Putin sentiment. Um, it might not be, you know, strong, but it's kind of like, well, you know, he's not woke. And, um, <laughs> you know, that, that, and so my, my question is, I, I, so I, I have a couple questions. Mm-hmm. My, the first one is how much of that, uh, the, the division and the embracing of Putin, of the, uh, Russian apology, apo- you know, the apo- apology for what they're doing is being driven. How much do you think might be driven by eight years of a, you know, cyber campaign. I remember there was that IRA report that, you know, demonstrated that, you know, the Russians had, the Russian cyber attack had done a pretty good job of infiltrating Facebook and creating conservative memes and kind of creating a lot of these cultural divisions. How much of that do you think uh, is successful and is behind uh, maybe some pro-Putin sentiments? And on top of it, um, and, and maybe my second question is, where do you, and this is the other discipline is, a lot of my conservative friends are saying, well, you know, we don't understand why everyone is banging the war drums and what's the big deal. You know, it's just Ukraine. Why not? You know, what about China and Taiwan? And I think a, a lot of the, of the sentiment there uh, might be they just don't like the general teleology of the Western nations. And I know Ukraine isn't the West, but, as yeah. they, you know, think of joining NATO as they join the EU that's kind of a step towards westernization. Sure. How do you say, right? And how do you, how do you see the right-wing resistance as part of just like an anti-Western, you know, a native anti-Western movement? What do you, what do you think about that? Is that something that you feel is going on? So yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to ask about. Okay. I did a bad uh, job, but I'm sorry. No, 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 no that's good. So, so I, I think there's a lot that's going on there. Uh, I'm just going to pick maybe one aspect to address and then throw it over to Cuba and uh, Kusha, my apologies. I, I, I know you were patiently waiting the whole time, but if you call on Sunday, I promise you'll be the uh, the very first call. 
uh, that uh, that that I'll take. On, uh, I can I can stay on for Kusha's uh, question. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, okay. I don't think I can. Then I can. But, yeah. So, uh, but have you yes. heard that Kusha? I, I was trying to trying. To yeah, yeah, it. yeah. It's it's not it's uh, it's not Kuba's fault. He was trying. Uh, it's entirely my fault, but. Uh, it won't be entirely off. Like I assume you're going to ask about the stuff we're talking about today. It will not be entirely off topic on uh, Sunday, even though it is a little bit more of a uh, philosophy episode. I'm going to be talking with Matt McManus about Dugan. So uh, there, there is a related uh, cluster of, uh, of topics here, but look, the one thing I was going to say before throwing to Cuba uh, is that it's, um, is that, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that there would be some instinctive affinity between Putinism and and the American right, especially the especially the sort of uh, socially traditionalist element of the American right, national <laughs> conservative flank. Yeah, totally right. I mean, like like he is, you know, I mean, he is more or less doing a lot of what they advocate. So, uh, so that 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 doesn't seem surprising to me. Now, once that instinct runs up against, you know, their like extremely strong instinctive jingoism, uh, like I saw yesterday, a clip of, uh, you know, one of the uh, most maga y uh, I think, uh, new members of Congress uh, saying on the, on the House floor, uh, quoting what who he the person he called the great philosopher Toby Keith. Uh, saying that uh, we'll put a boot up your ass. That's the American way. So I, I think there might be some worried instincts there, but that there would be like some initial instinct of like, of like solidarity that like, these are people who echo what we want ideologically. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, so I'm a big fan of uh, Rod Dreher, who is <laughs> a, always a promising start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he's my, he is such an uncompromising and pure um, Christian fundamentalist that um, his particular form of religiosity trumps that nativist um, patriotic um, instinct that cuts against some of the uh, American rights inclinations towards Putin. And one uh, important uh, characteristic of the United States, part of kind of like one of the Rosetta Stones of understanding what's going on in the country, is that the level of cultural animosity and division between uh, those on the cultural left and those on the cultural right uh, has gotten to um, a level where external enemies recede into um, the far distance and only become relevant when they can be used as proxies in the internal cultural struggle. The uh, and Rod Dreher, who I believe right now is in Budapest on Orban's dime, is very happy to um, side with any type of uh, foreign leader that is willing to go after the real enemy, which for him is um, especially uh, LGBTQ communities, 
and and a secondary kind of way, uh, critical race theory. So, um, this creates this opening, and we saw it most of all with Trump for um, leaders like Putin, uh, states like Russia, to rehabilitate themselves to the traditionally xenophobic and militarist right wing by um, essentially owning the libs, right? Anything that bothers, that enrages, that threatens the American cultural left is seen as um, the most welcome type of uh, force for uh, the raw drares of the world. And I'm deeply concerned about this development, not in so much as uh, it creates a vector for uh, Russian uh, meddling and destabilization efforts, but because it precisely because it's sincere and right. uh, domestic and deeply felt. Uh, one quip that I like to trot out on occasion is that having been all over the world, having spoken to conservative Muslims, to nationalist Russians, to, um, you know, white fascists everywhere, uh, uh-huh. the, to Vietnamese communists, people who were bombed by the United States, um, to um, Iraqis, um, to people who've experienced uh, imperialism, no one hates Americans like other Americans hate Americans. And the type of rhetoric and the intensity of animosity that one experiences routinely when political uh, topics come up in debate in the United States, um, targeting you know, conservatives if you're a liberal or liberals if you're a conservative. The only time that I heard language and uh, emotion that would match that, that would compare is when my family was briefly in uh, Yugoslavia in 1989, right before the outbreak of a genocidal civil war. Right. Yeah, and even if, uh, even if for any number of reasons that's not in the cards uh, here and now, that's that that is. Uh, I think we could say that's capital N, capital G, not good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not prognosticating, right? Sure. Like the great, yeah, you know, anti woke war, right? Um, but this uh, level of animosity, and it plays out in mass shootings, it plays out in violent protests, um, is like you said, capital N, capital G, not good. And until there's some truce or resolution, it will be very difficult to um, make any substantial reforms to the American system or embark on any big project like dealing with global warming. One reason why the Russian invasion is actually kind of welcomed by some elements of the establishment is that they look to the Cold War as another time when internal cleavages were very severe but the external threat could be used to um, galvanize those different segments and um, create enough of a, of a shared 
uh, threat that um, the system could work. I don't know what will happen after, I, I don't know what will happen as a result of, of these events. And uh, as much as I worry about countries like, um, like Russia or China, I also worry uh, just as much about the internal um, contradictions of the United States and how they may end um, in ways that we would all regret. Fair enough. All right. Uh, this has been so, this has been so good. I really could uh, all else be equally uh, happily uh, keep talking about this stuff for the next five hours, but uh, I should go. Uh, I was supposed to be on the David Feldman show. So uh, thank you so much, Kuba. You've been ridiculously generous with uh, with your time coming back, you know, to to do this so soon after the last time. But you know, I, I think you know, try to mix it up a little bit and talk about other things. But I mean, that this is so much on people's minds right now that it's it's it seems sort of ridiculous not to uh, not to keep coming back to it at regular intervals. But um, this I, this I look forward to uh, once again being like a relatively irrelevant guest that you can <laughs> talk movies with. All right. Well, uh, certainly when that happens, certainly have you on talking about movies. But uh, but thank you so much, Kuba. Thanks, everybody. Left is